Today, we're going to talk about what are our hopes, our dreams for the upcoming school year. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as every week and always, is Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Ravi, how are you doing? Dude, I'm doing great, man. I've been working on this long form podcast based in India and I was just on the phone with a person down there who's just like the amount of courage that some of these partners are showing down there on this project, which our listeners will get to know in the spring, this project, but just a lot of people like it's, it's cool to meet people who are really putting their livelihoods on the line for justice. And uh, yeah, I'm pumped, man. I'm just really excited. And you're going to spend some time there. Yeah, I'm going to be there for at least three weeks. I've never been to India, even though my dad is Indian. So I'm going to be there for at least three weeks wow. in October. So yeah, I'm I'm excited about it. I'm I'm. It's a very serious project. Like so, it's like I I feel a lot of pressure to deliver for the people on the ground. Uh, and we have a really good partner in Crooked Media who is going to make sure we have a huge audience for it. So it's just like a really. It's both like very inspiring, like the people we're working with, and a lot of pressure. So we'll see. You're Ivy League, man. You do good with pressure. You, like, you, <laughs> yes. you, you do good with pressure. <laughs> You're not keeping up the having children front like you should be right now. Oh my but, God. But, but you are Ivy League and you figure these things out and you move things forward. So that's what I know about you. Um, for our listeners, I want to throw something at Ravi just at the beginning of our show. Today, we are going to talk about the upcoming school year. Schools have started again, and we're going to talk about like you know our hopes or dreams and our predictions for schools this year. But before we do, I have to always go back to my favorite city, my mother's birthplace of San Francisco. And I just want to keep them in the feed here because I think you know they're the whipping boy, I think, for, for us for different reasons. The previous version of their board and their city uh, was my whipping boy for a period of time. And their new version, it's kind of almost equally the whipping boy. But now I think Ravi would say they've gotten better. I Have I said that? But continue. Sorry. I don't mean to, I don't want to, I don't want to slow your momentum here on whatever bullshit you're about to throw at me right it's now. It's not. No, no, no. Go this for is it. actually, Go this for is. It. <laughs> I know you well enough to know that there's a setup coming. I'm not going to You've been it. at this for a little no, while. No, no, I no. know you. Because if I set you up on this, it would take too long. So I'm going to pretend like I know very little about education and ask you a couple of naive questions, yeah, right? Okay. Okay. All right. I'll play along. So the, the name of the story is in the San Francisco Chronicle, and it's called uh, San Francisco School District Charts Map for District Overhaul. Families and educators are already frustrated. Uh, have you seen this story? No. Okay. So here's a couple of naive, naive questions. In 15 years, the school district has lost... 15,000 students. They lost 5,000 of those in the last five years. Now, <laughs> here, here's the first naive question. It says the district currently serves about 48,000 students and employs 10,000 educators. Oh my God. And other staff. <laughs> um, Ravi, help me understand. How could you have 48,000 students and have 10,000 educators and staff. I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and, and and guess that they're not tutoring those students 1 to 3. <laughs> Which would be amazing actually if that's what they were doing I'd be like, you know, God bless them. But 
somehow I think that that's not the answer here. I have no idea what the answer could be. Yeah. I just really don't. Like literally as a yeah. former school board member, I don't know how you have. Here's the other thing. So as that 15,000 students were leaving and decreasing, staffing was going up. So here's another naive question. Ravi, how does that happen? How do you lose students, but you increase the number of educators? I am... Uh, I'm going to patch you into your your girl, uh, Randy Weingarten. Maybe she can answer that question for you. you. Now that you're friends with all these unions, uh, maybe you should call her. That's terrible. You can't blame the unions for that, man. Somebody has to be making the decision about like, you know, listen, we're, we lost 15,000 students. This feels like this would be a board thing. So. so, by the way, speaking of unions, what day is today? So this Sunday... Well, this would have been the previous Sunday because this is airing on Tuesday. Very fascinating for you and for our listeners. I'm airing an episode on the Lost Debate feed called When Unions Sell Out Their Members. And I think you will find this very interesting because it's all about this case in New York where the unions in New York got together. It's not just the teachers unions, a few unions. And the leadership wound up giving their members a crappy healthcare plan, even though they promised to give them a Medicare and Medicare supplemental. And they basically tried to pocket the difference like between the union and Mayor Adams, create this like slush fund of sorts. And all about this legal fight that had been happening that actually pitted the union members in New York City against the union leadership, Eric Adams, and the healthcare company that Adams had picked. And it is a very fascinating story that doesn't get a lot of attention. So people should listen to that. You'll find it interesting. I interviewed a lawyer for the union members because Chris, you're for the union leadership. I'm for the members. Like I'm, I'm, I'm out there stop it. For, for the little people. <laughs> Like you my mother, not. who's one yeah. of those members. My mom is one of those members who was affected by this, which is how I even found out about it. Like she was complaining to me about how they were like pulled the rug out from under them after they'd promised them for 40 years that they had have one healthcare plan. And she was explaining to me that they were going to this other healthcare plan. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. So people listen to it. It's really cool. And it's all, it's a reminder that you could be against union leadership while being for the members. Maybe, but I think the majority of people who say that are just against unions. <laughs> so, so they can hide behind that I'm for the members thing, but uh, I think sometimes that's a false flag. My mom is one of those members. You should love your mom and you should give her some grandchildren slacking on the job there. <laughs> um, but anyways, so this is oh, what I'll Lord. say about that particular thing. I'm going to leave San Francisco alone because I had one more naive question, but it falls in the same kind of vein, you know, just as what we know as district school watchers. Like some things just don't make sense. Like the math of some things don't make sense. Doesn't make sense that you would lose, you would have a $1.6 billion budget and you would lose 15,000 students. And at the same time, you would gain so many educators during that period of time to the point where you have 10,000 educators. Like that's, that's a lot of people for a district of 48,000 kids, which is relatively small for that. I'm going to take the bait on your union thing really quick, and then we can jump into our show, which is the union thing. I will say this much. I actually have always tagged unions for these type of stories that you're talking about right now. Those are exactly the type of stories that has had me criticize unions. So I was never criticizing unions because I hate unions. And it was never because it's because they make business decisions sometimes that either aren't great for their, their workers or their students for some cynical reason. And that isn't enough for me to say that I think that unions are bad or we shouldn't have unions though. What I will say is you should be careful, my friend. You should be very careful. What I'm about to tell you is very important for you with this, like this beating up on the unions in this way. What you are describing is corporate unionism. This is corporate unionism that you are talking about. And it's old school New York corporate unionism and the competition 
for corporate unionism is worker unionism, and worker unionism is what you have in Chicago. So when Chicago, the people like Karen... You mean Karen Lewis, right? Yeah, yeah, Karen Lewis. And those folks kicked out the old guard and the old school corporate folks who were doing things like what you're saying right now. What replaced that was worker unionism and activist unionism. I don't know that you would like Chicago any better. Like the amount of straw men that you've erected in the last <laughs> two minutes, it. I'm just going to let them go. Somehow your your critique of the unions comes from this place of genuine concern, whereas mine is out concerned. of a sense of malice is what you just set up. Yes. I'm going to let that go, but I'm going to point out to the audience that that's the dichotomy that you set up. I wake up every day because I hate the worker. You wake up every day because you love the rats. I see. I understand. That's what separates us. All right, continue. I, I, I'm just going to say, continue, Chris. I'm just going to say this one part. Like, Please continue. I, I, I could be wrong, but I do think that there's going to be a competition in unions between the older workers and the younger workers. I do believe that the, the older workers are typified by the type of things you guys have going on in New York. That is very old school unionism stuff that's been going on for many years. And I think Regardless of what you and I say, I think they're going to have an intergenerational battle in unions. And there is going to be a younger guard coming up for in those sure. unions who are going to be sure. pushing a way more worker-focused, less corporate, less cynical version of what they want. And I generally think that's a good thing, but I think you and I might cringe at some things that might happen from that too. That's the only thing I'm saying. I'm going to say about that. Yeah. Well, it's it's not for any of us to dictate what they do with that power at this point. Obviously, like if you live in that city, like I do in New York, I will have opinions. What's fascinating, like, you know, there's a lot of trends of unions and one of them is in that case of New York too, they had to form an association outside of the union in order to bring that case, which I find as a, a underrated part of that story because that is dangerous to the union. You got people organizing, creating their own channels of communication, their own methods to, to that. If I'm the union, I'm that, that's a, that's quite a turn. And so listen to that episode, everybody, by the time this episode airs, you'll be able to listen to it. But we are here to talk about the coming school year. We've got the 2023-2024 school year. My goodness. It is upon us. And, uh, you know, depending on where you live, you're already in school. Or if you're like me and you're in New York, it's about to happen. People are coming back to the city. It's an exciting time of year. And there's a lot happening in K-12 education around the country. And so we're going to do a, a special episode here where we're going to answer three questions. One is, what is our hope for the coming school year? Our second is what is our fears for the coming school year? And three is predictions for the coming school year. So which one should we do first, Chris? I think we should do hope first because, you know, hope is like a good place to start. I want to ask you one question. Again, I'm going to act naive about this. We haven't started school in Minnesota yet. Why do you think that is? Oh, I have no idea. Because we have a law that says we can't start school until after Labor Day. Why do you think that law is? Uh, farming? The recreation lobby has fought for years for us to have a longer school year for our kids, even though they desperately need it, because they desperately need our young people working for the summer. Oh, I see. And they don't need us starting school. So the cabins, the state fair... The, the lakes, all of that type of stuff. Every year, when or not every year, every time that there is a bill to make us have a longer school year, that's who comes out and fights it. So, and your state sounds awesome. The only time I've ever been to your state is when you locked me in that damn mall for forty eight hours for that meeting that we had, the Mall of America. For listeners, I go to Minnesota once in my life, and Chris has the meeting and the hotel and every meal. 
in the Mall of America. And it was a so great time. I really time. don't know anything about. I don't know anything about <laughs> Minnesota. I only know about the mall. It was a great time. Uh, so maybe I'll come back. So I will say this about that time. When you came here, we went to the escape room in the mall and we divided into two teams. And on my team, I had multiple Ivy League educated people and we did not get out of the room. We didn't escape room. We went back. I went back a week later with my 15 year old who got me out of the escape room. I just want to say, I just want to say for the record, kids can be smart. I went to state undergrad. That's where I I did my real learning. (laughs) I wasn't on your team, by the way. All right, you go first. Well, you go first for your hopes for the coming school year. All right. My big hope is that we start to see different models of grouping kids together that look fundamentally different than we've seen before. I know this is like a very practice heavy one, but you know, I've talked about on this podcast before my dream of creating, and I, I talked to Matt Barnum about this a little bit. I don't think he quite, no offense to Matt, I don't think he quite understood what I was trying to say, but the, I've, t- I've given you this spiel before where I think like, There are pedagogical reasons why you can get kids together in bigger groups than are acceptable, like 50 plus, while making room then to pull kids into smaller groups. And I think technology and the the sort of proliferation and growth of high quality technological instructional tools all make that even easier to do that because of like what all the other kids are doing. And my sense is and obviously we have to see this in practice, we'll have to study it, is that in the hands of the right schools, mixing the day where in some cases kids have 50 kids in the classroom and they're hearing lectures or they're working on problem sets through high quality technological tools, et cetera, while they get pulled in smaller groups. And if maybe like, maybe your ratio is five to one where you're in a big group and the one is when you're in a small group, that that actually might wind up being better for the kid because an hour of like really focused, really small group instruction, I don't mean small like 15, I mean small like three, four, Mm -hmm. sometimes one-on-one, that that's actually better for kids if it's done right. And I would love to see that tested and implemented across the country in places where it is allowed. Do you know of any place that is already doing it? No. And I know there are a lot of listeners out there like who are really knowledgeable. So like if you're out there, I, I vaguely remember an article in 74 or something that talks about the concept from this year. I got to go dig it up. Maybe they mentioned somebody doing it, but if it exists, let me know out there, listener, I'll come out and see it. I really do. I'm obsessed with this idea. I think it's and it's honestly how universities do things. Like when I was in physics, you know, I had, I took physics in university. I, I did, a, you know, I was a science student. So I had all these big science lectures, but then you'd have these breakout groups where you do, you know, laboratory work or you do problem sets and things like that. And I, and I thought that was actually a really helpful way to learn. And so I would love to see more of that. That's my dream. I want to see that. I know it's kind of a boring nuts and bolts thing, but I want to see more of that. I think some of the boring nuts and bolts stuff is the stuff that we got to get fascinated with again. I think we have drifted so far into non-educational, I don't know, politics in surrounding education that we are not attending to the unsexy things like teaching and learning. And you hear me say it on every show. It's like, all I care about is teaching, learning, assessment, scope, sequence, budget, day, staff. You know, those are the things that makes education go around. What can we do that's best to set up a teacher to not burn out, to be able to teach more kids who have more needs, more diverse needs? Those are the questions that I think they may be unsexy, but we better answer them. My hope for this year is that we see some breakthroughs. 
My real hope is that there are places that give us reason to have hope, like somebody who starts closing the pandemic learning loss gap at a fast clip, and we can all look and go, let's applaud that, you know, let's replicate it or whatever. Breakthroughs, right? Like sometimes you can have a, a, a cancer for so long or a problem so long that you stop thinking that breakthroughs are possible, and then everybody's doomed. Like then you just have to accept the sickness if you do that. So some things around mental health for students. If somebody has a breakthrough on that, that would be great because, you know, teenagers are depressed right now at a very, very high level, a high rate. Someone who does something that recovers students, because right now the absentee crisis is hitting a lot of places particularly hard. There's just a whole bunch of students. We don't even know where they are. Like we just don't even like, how can you educate? and get good numbers with students if you don't even have the students or if they're just not showing up. And it's a, it's one thing to monitor that and talk about it. It's another thing to say, well, you know, in Chicago, they solved it. Or in, you know, Indianapolis, they had an increase of like 60% of those kids coming back, you know, breakthroughs. That's the stuff that I just really hope to see this year, stuff that gives us the ability to dream again and to think again that it's possible to make gains through education and it's not all bad news. That's my hope for the school year. And I think it's going to happen if we pay attention. I think the only way we're going to see those examples in those cities is if we're looking for it. Because I don't think the media is great about it. I love this. Yeah, well, I also, you know, this this gets to like the Matt conversation we had is it's kind of demoralizing when the answer to every question is we don't know. On the one <laughs> hand, on the other hand, you know, I forget yeah. who said, bring me a, somebody, I think it might have been a president or something, was like, bring me a one-handed economist because I'm sick of them saying on the one hand, yeah. on the other hand. He's like, I only want one person with one hand. And I was making this point where I was like, I know it's not your job, like it's not his job to be like, here's the answer. And like, but it is demoralizing when everybody's like, oh, I hear... I can't really say what works. I can't really say what doesn't work. And that's why I think we got to be more strident and being like, look, like this, there's actually some stuff happening out there that's working. Keep doing it. Motivate people. Because if we don't take time to acknowledge progress, the people doing the work get demoralized, you know? Here's the thing. I think people like you, very smart people, should challenge people like Matt, though. And, and I, I've grown an appreciation for what Matt does over time. But he does have a template that basically says nothing is nothing. The story's mixed. The plot line, it's like after you've seen a movie enough times, the plot line to every Matt Barnum story is the research is mixed. Even when the research is not mixed, the research is very clearly saying one side is winning over another. He will find the way to create a balance between opponents and non-opponents of a thing. So we know Credo is telling us with charter schools Credo is telling us in the, you know, the more recent rounds that if you're black and brown in an urban center and you go to a charter school that is managed by a CMO, you will do better, right? You will do better. That same kid going somewhere else. Now, people could write that story in many different ways, but you could write that story as, well, you know, the research is mixed, right? Like, it doesn't tell us exactly what I just said. And here's some other research that says kids don't do any better, Right. I don't know that that serves us well. It feels like it's broad-minded, yeah. but I don't know that it, it helps. Yeah, and, and to be fair to him, uh, what he said in his Credo article, if I remember correctly, was that the effect size or something wasn't big. But I do I do want to ask him about it the next time I hear him because I don't want to, I want to be fair to him that he I had him on, so I don't want to, I don't want to go at him while he's not on. But I think when we do have him on again, maybe we'll have you have him on and you could ask him about that because I do have questions about that because... I, I did notice that when he writes about the, the credo stuff, for instance, and I, and I meant to ask him about this, we just didn't have enough time. He was like basically saying, yes, this study like 
does say that chargers are more effective and it's particularly certain kinds of chargers are very effective. And then he kind of minimized the results. And I don't, I don't, I don't always see that in other things, like some of the other things I was asking about, like if there's a study on class size or there's a study on does more money help, I don't see an effort to minimize the results. And I would want him to like talk about like, maybe I'm missing something or whatever, but I don't, I want to be fair to him because he's not on right now. So Matt, if you're listening, be ready for that question. It's coming. I will say this to be fair to him. And, and I've said, what I just said earlier, I've said to him, like it's been a running joke between him and I that all his stories come out with the, the research is mixed. But to his credit about consistency, what you just said, I actually think he does do the both sides, even in those cases too, like the other stories. So when he tells a story about teacher shortages, he'll say kind of like there are teacher shortages in some places and in some places there's not a teacher shortage. He, he would do the same thing around class size. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk to him because I, 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 I sense a little different of a pattern, but I want to, I want to save it for him because I want to be fair to him and ask him about it when I have him. Well, on. you should talk to him because the other side would probably say about him that they're equally as frustrated that he doesn't give their side of the story the way that they would want it to be. So um, did we exhaust hopes for the upcoming school year? Mine is breakthroughs. And I think yours is more around how we group students and, you know, how effective is it the way that we do it right now, which I'm assuming you mean that it's not very effective the way that we group students right now. Yeah, well, it's, it's just it could be better, I guess, is the point. Like, it's unimaginative right now in too many places. Like, let's use our imagination. Let's let's be willing to. And I, th and I think a lot of reasons why educators don't do what I'm describing is because the headline 50 person classroom would be the end of a lot of educators. So part of it is like they need political cover and support to do that. Or it has to be something like a charter school that starts off with that premise and somehow gets authorized mm -hmm. so that there's, there's like an explicit buy-in from day one on that. So it is tricky, but if you're out there thinking about it, uh, let me know because I really want to see it. All right. So what are your fears for the coming school year? I mean, this one is easy. Like this school year is going to overlap with the heart of the presidential election and the amount of dumb <laughs> that's going on in the election as it relates to education <laughs> just makes me very fearful for how that dumb is going to trickle down to the classrooms. It already is, obviously. If you're if you're in the classrooms in certain states, especially the politics is getting in the way of your work. And I'll say, like, I watched the GOP debate and they, to their credit, they did have a education section, which is more than could be said of most of the de debates on the Democratic primary side. Last time I've written about this, where it was just idiotic, like the, 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 the lack of attention given to education in the last primary season was offensive. Like the, the most notable moment about education was when Kamala Harris attacked Joe Biden on busing, which is a policy that last time I checked really isn't much of an issue in 2024, or at least the way she was describing it wasn't an issue. She was talking about decades ago busing. So then I was like, I got excited. I got, I, I got my back up listening to this debate. I'm like, all right, education, let's go. Let's hear it. And it was just so stupid. I don't know what I don't know what to say. Like the things they were saying, I try not to throw these kinds of words around. But it was truly. I, I felt dumber after listening to the discussion. And we talked about Ricky and I had a, a conversation this week about the promise to end the Department of Education, which is now a mainstream position in the Republican Party. It got two hundred votes in the House recently, and it's something like four, at least four. Prominent candidates, including Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, Donald Trump, all say that they want to get rid of the Department of Education. And like, look, 
like we treated it with seriousness in our segment. So if people want to listen to like a whole thing on that, like there's, there are actually legitimate critiques of the way the Department of Education operates. I don't think abolishing it is anywhere near the answer, nor have they brought in any nuance to explain what that even means in practice and how they would reallocate certain responsibilities or funding for kids with special education or Title I. And I don't want to do the work for them. Like, they need to explain themselves. But that's how it is on this stuff. It's like, it's either like a woke soup of just political buzzwords or completely half-baked ideas that are more about sound bites than actually like helping kids. And what makes it particularly depressing is these people like Vivek will throw in school choice when they're talking about these things. Like, so when he talked about getting rid of the Department of Education, he talks about like reallocating a lot of that money for quote unquote school choice. And as somebody, as you and I have established last week, like we are believers in a certain version of school choice. It makes our job harder when the stupid comes for school choice and starts to get commingled with it. So that's my fear, is just that the dumb is going to trickle down and make it harder for anybody who's really serious to do this work. I feel like you Matt Barnumed that point. What do you mean Matt Barnumed it? You know, well, the Democrats do this, and the Republicans do that. As if- First of all, that's not what Matt does. <laughs> Matt, <laughs> Matt a- what we were just claiming is Matt, and I, I feel bad for Matt listening <laughs> to this podcast, is like, what Matt does is he's very measured. What I just did was call a bunch of people stupid, which is not what Matt does. He does not do that. And he's, he's yes, you're right about that. He does not do that. He does do the wanting to see all sides of things, the both sides of things. And both side, both siderism sometimes is smart. And then in other cases, I just don't know that it's founded on reality. So the idea that what you saw with the Democrats and the Republicans are equal in their stupid. <laughs> well, I did not say that. Oh, okay. I said I was, yeah. I said I was bummed out by the lack of coverage in the debates to that. Dem- and that's, uh, you know, that's an objective fact. And we can go back and look at this. I tallied it up. There was literally no discussion of education pretty much in the last democratic cycle in the debates themselves. Like there were very mm-hmm. few moments. So, you know, my setup was, so I was excited when they asked about it here. And then I was disappointed when I heard what they had to say about it. That's my setup. We could leave the Democrats out of this one. I don't really, like, this is really a point about, like, look, there's going to be, like, we can count on what the, we know what the Democratic position is going to be. Like, Joe Biden wants to expand the Department of Education, you know, and we can have a debate about whether expanding is good or bad. But, like, the Republican position on this, I would say they need to do some work to explain what the hell they mean by abolish the Department of Education. And I'm, as even as somebody who loves school choice, I'm not sure like commingling school choice with it is, is, a, is a smart thing to do, you know? I mean, it's so commingled now that it is the same thing, right? So it is making people choose a side like me. So that people know when I say that I am for kids having options, multiple pathways to learning and all that stuff, it is not the same thing that the uh, these guys are talking about. And I will let them have school choice as a trademark, as a thing. Keep it. The Education Week story about the, the debate in education makes note in the very first paragraph of the things that were most important to the GOP leaders. Teachers unions, denouncing teachers unions, critical race theory gender ideology, and a call for the elimination of the Department of Education, and a push for expanded school choice. So that is the education agenda of the right and the GOP. And school choice isn't like a cherry on top of all that other stupid. It's actually, it's the it's their main version of what they think they can do positive for education. They don't know anything. 
Like, what's my main thing I always talk about? They don't have anything here about teaching, learning, instruction, improving education, accountability, assessment, using data to drive instruction. None of that. It's just, let's give everybody a coupon to go to SeaWorld, which I've made fun of on this podcast many times over. So let them have that version of school choice for one reason. There is no future for that, right? They can win political battles on that right now. Maybe this gets Vivek a certain number of votes next year. Maybe it makes him the vice president, presidential candidate. Maybe they keep winning the hearts and minds of some people by beating up on teachers unions, the 3 million teachers in the United States, and beating up on black people with their anti-critical race theory humiliation of black people in multiple states. Like, listen, I have the political power. I could take away your black studies from you for the entertainment of other people. Let them keep doing that. The gender ideology, something that, you know, like, listen, like, it's always great to beat up on 0.05% of the American population because that's such a small group of people, you can get away with it. You can just like really beat, beat them. So if that's your winning strategy right now, let go ahead, win some votes on that right now. I can guarantee you, that that is not a winning strategy for the future. And I will say this much, my fear, because we're talking about our fears for the next school year, is that we do further damage to progress that we need to make in making the public smarter. I heard you say I felt dumber after watching this debate. <laughs> and nobody, let's, let's be real, Ravi, nobody on that stage is dumb. Like those are some very, those are elite people, including Vivek is, is those are elite people, right? They're, they're wealthy and they're smart people. So when they dumb themselves down for this, you know, it's all pandering to dumb people. My fear is that people get dumber over the next year about education because number one, we don't think about it enough. So if the time that we do spend thinking about it, it's all on the wrong parts of things, nothing that's going to help us advance kids, nothing that's going to help us get kids further to where they need to get. And I mean, all kids, like, you know, of all co colors, all backgrounds, just all Americans. So that's my biggest fear is that because it's an election year, we're going to keep doing damage to kids with these really, really brain dead conversations about stupid things like critical race theory, Marxism, teachers unions, and all of that. I do want to say, I had it pulled up why the the reason that uh, Vivek wants to get rid of the Department of Education, by the way, I should also say this, he wants to get rid of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and also the FBI. <laughs> He's got poly policy positions on ending all of these organizations. But there are three key problems that he points out for why he wants to end the Department of Education. The first one, the very first one is it foists divisive ideology using taxpayer funding as a cudgel. The Department of Education awards tens of billions of dollars in block grants to local education authorities each year, but only if they meet uh, politically favored benchmarks. The first one being they give $1.5 million of grants to support racial minorities in higher education. So the reason to get rid, of, get rid of the Department of Education is it does too much to try and help historically marginalized people be successful in education. That's the number one reason to get rid of it. That's my fear. My fear is that stupid keeps winning and we do harm to our kids because of it. I feel like that was a rant, but, <laughs> you know. Well, I think I could tell we're both excited for this election season. Let's talk about predictions. Like, obviously, our fears and hopes are wrapped up in predictions. But, you know, my prediction is simple. I mean, it's anybody who listens to this podcast, I think, would, would see it, which is, I think, by the end of the year, the school year, I think, and this is from a policy perspective, I think the notoriety of ESAs as a concept 
dramatically increases. Like people who don't even live in ESA states, I think will be familiar with them in a way that they are not now. Like when I talk to people in New York, for instance, which is not affected in the same way that say like if you're in Florida or Arizona, people don't really know what they are. But I do think that this issue is going to rise to prominence given the scale that has been already passed in a lot of states and which is starting to started to come online and starting to become a reality. So I, I think that people will start to learn about these things and start to, it'll become part of the political discourse in a way that charter schools are. Not not like automatically at the end of the year at the same scale, but it'll be heading in that direction. So your prediction is within the next year that more people who aren't like, you know, education jockeys, people who are like <laughs> not in the fold already will have an opinion about ESAs or just like a general sense of awareness? Yeah, yeah and know what they, they'll like, it'll become a conversation outside of ESA states and niche education circles. Whereas right now, like a lot of people I talk to uh, who are pretty like media literate people and care about politics and policy don't really understand what an ESA is and don't understand the sheer scale of what has already been passed in a lot of states in this country. My prediction on that one is I don't know for sure. Like I hate predictions in some ways because it's like, you know, in some ways it's like a mood ring or like, you know, tarot cards or something like that. Like, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but based on trends, I could probably say that's how I would form predictions on this ESA thing. I think if we look at trends in education from past times, past years, you pass something like that. You try and get as many people in it as possible because you believe that with more people in it, it'll be harder to take away because you rush for speed and scale so fast and you celebrate speed and scale so fast, you do dumb things and you start actually developing fodder for your opponents. So we have seen that in the past, like think big things that we wanted to get passed or put through, we did get them passed or put through. And we were very, we lacked humility about the way that, you know, we thought that they were the right thing to do for many reasons. I think this one has all that, the fingerprints of all that possibility on it. It's going to create a market. It's going to create a marketplace. It's going to put a lot of money into the market. And it's going to create, I think, campaign issues for Democrats in the future. Look at all these fraudulent actors and players in the market. Uh, look at all these bad things that went wrong. Look at all these kids still not learning. Actually, look at these kids that are doing worse than if they were in the supposedly failing public schools. Look at all these people who took the money and they opened schools that look just like the old schools that the kids came from. Uh, look at the number of people that are, have never been in public school at all. So we're just actually sending money to be kind of like educational welfare for the rich. These are the type of future stories I predict. I predict those stories just having to do with the essays, not predictions on other things. So you're not pro ESA. <laughs> no, so you're not, I actually you're not am. Looking forward to actually, this. I think I think that I'm still a person who supports how they could be used. Like, listen, I've always thought about this in terms of what helps black kids because I'm a black person. I care about black kids. I feel like historically that group of people needs a solution. That group of people has never caught up, right? Uh, let's just be real. In the United States, there's a group of people who never caught up with the people that had a 400-year head start, right? And we're starting to talk to them in ways now where it's like, we give up on even trying anymore. We think that's old and that's over. We don't even have to, like, we don't even have to work to, to justify that. I still feel like we need to be thinking about ways in which we help people become whole become enfranchised in the United States, specifically historically marginalized people, Native Americans, BIPOC people, whatever you want to call them. They all have a reason for us. If we 
The Paul Wellstone thing of we all do better when we all do better requires us not to be competitive with our co-patriots. It requires us to be cooperative and caring about everybody. So we have these groups that are lagging. We don't look at them and say, well, you're falling at the wrong end of meritocracy. You say, hey, you've fallen. Can I help you get up? Right. So ESAs, I think, is one version of I think black people can start black schools. So I've always supported these type of schemes for that particular reason. I think they could become a tool for uh, Native American people and for black people to continue trying to find their own solution for themselves. Right. To create the space where they can do it, create the resources where they can do it. That's why I'm still for school choice. I'm still for, you know, the ESAs and stuff like that. What I said to you earlier in terms of my feedback on it, is I think that the people who push it are imperiling the very idea because of a lack of humility, a rush to scope, a rush to scale, and kind of just like a lot of testosterone, like they're having a wargasm about how many you know, places they're passing these laws and everything. And I just think it's, it's cringy and it's going to be bad for them in the future. That's my prediction. My prediction about next year is pretty easy, pretty simple, which is it's an, it's an election year. You hit on all of it. There's nowhere good that I think the debate could go like next year. Like I think there's too many rewards to be won by saying all the dumb stuff about education for the next year. All the, you know, the battle fighting, the, you know, the battle, the em- enemy imaging and all of that stuff is just going to be too rewarding politically to not do that next year. I think the whole culture war stuff, the Moms for Liberty, the, you know, white kids are the real kind of minority that are being abused all that type of stuff is going to be too good for the GOP. And the Democrats have a very unsexy message, which is we should just fully fund our public schools. And, you know, our public schools are an institution like the cornerstone of democracy. And probably should have said in my hope section of this podcast, I hope the adults that used to be in the room that used to say things like, you know, accountability matters and, you know, pattern recognition and looking at data over time and having states on board. Uh, with standards and all that stuff. I hope that group of people reasserts their ability to be adults. Well, if you're listening out there and you're a parent, you're an educator, or you're a student, good luck out there (laughs) for the coming school year. Send us in voicemails and messages telling us how it is going. We want to learn. We want to hear about it. Chris, What's your, what are your, how, you, you got a bunch of kids. Like what's it, what are your, you got, how many school age kids you got left here? I got three. I have three in the pipeline. Still in traditional public schools. Everybody should know that. District public schools. Two that are going to be in high school. And the high school doesn't look like a traditional public high school. It looks like a community college. Very nice high school. And, the, and one still in middle school. And the middle school does not look like um, <laughs> like that high school. Now, are you, are you, the, are you the soccer dad? type of parent like are you are you going there and are you like are you just a helicopter parenting like are you going there and like just like getting looking under the hood bothering the teachers about what's going on in there or are you pretty hands off you know it would be very surprising to people who know me to know that i am the laissez-faire parent of the two parents in this household my wife is very much the helicopter very much the grass keeper very much the let's go on to Skyward, you know, so yeah, let's go into Skyward or let's go into Class Dojo or whatever it is and let's check every other night and, you know, that whole thing. And I'm kind of like laissez-faire about all of that. She, I think she actually wants me to stay out of the business because if I do have to go to the school, 
as Chris Stewart or Citizen Stewart, <laughs> and I show up at your school as a dad, it could be bad. So I think she purposely keeps me out. I had a school board member's child at one of my schools once. It wasn't fun. <laughs> you know, listen, we know too much. So when I come home, I want to be a civilian. I travel a lot. I see other people's schools in their districts when I come home. I want to be a civilian. But I will say this. I'm very, like, I'm usually worried around this time about, like, what's going to come, like, for the year. Like, this isn't a time of, like, you know, rest for me. This is a time of, okay, we're going back. Let's, you know, have a good year this time. I'm thinking steadily about, you know, college. These kids are racing towards that direction. And are we going to get there? And um, how many of their friends are going to get there? And, you know, we have what could feel like a 50-50 school. I don't know what you think about this, but where if you looked at it on paper, it's not doing very well, but half the kids are doing really well and half aren't. Like there's not a lot of middle ground. Yeah, this is the this is the case for No Child Left Behind. We wouldn't even know that. We wouldn't know how it breaks down if it weren't for No Child Left Behind. It tells us the subgroups. I think to the parents listening to this right now, if you have kids going in, I empathize because you know I just told you why. I have three kids that are going into schools this year. Uh, one of the reasons that I actually have focused on education for so long is because my own education was really crappy and it did not work out very well. And when it became apparent in my early 20s, it became a thing for me. It became like the thing that I would be militant about. And here I am all these years later with no grandchildren with that first child, by the way, still in the game and empathizing with other parents that are just getting started in this thing. So we, as always, we appreciate you listening and offering us your feedback. Please send us anything that you think would help us do a better job with this show. You guys are already doing it, so we really appreciate that from you. And we will see you on the next episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcast at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check Check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.